Before we get started, we want to let you know that AHR Interview is available to stream and subscribe to on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. To find us, use the search term American Historical Association. Welcome to AHR Interview, a production of the American Historical Review. I'm Daniel Story. In this episode, we speak with Bianca Primo and Yana Yanakakis. Their article, A Court of Sticks and Branches, Indian Jurisdiction in Colonial Mexico and Beyond, appears in the February 2019 issue of the AHR as part of a forum titled Indigenous Agency and Colonial Law. The forum also features an article by Miranda Johnson from the University of Sydney titled The Case of the Million Dollar Duck, A Hunter, His Treaty, and the Bending of the Settler Contract, and an introductory essay by University of Washington historian Joshua L. Reed. Bianca Primo is professor of history at Florida International University. Her most recent book is The Enlightenment on Trial, Ordinary Litigants and Colonialism in the Spanish Empire, published in 2017. She's also the author of the 2005 book Children of the Father King, Youth, Authority, and Legal Minority in Colonial Lima. Yana Yanakakis is Associate Professor of History and currently the Winship Distinguished Research Associate Professor of History at Emory University. She is the author of the 2008 book, The Art of Being in Between, Native Intermediaries, Indian Identity, and Local Rule in Colonial Oaxaca. Her current book project is titled Mexico's Babel, Native Justice in Oaxaca from Colony to Republic. Primo and Yanakakis spoke with AHR editor Alex Lichtenstein. The interview was recorded at this year's AHA conference in Chicago, so if you hear any sounds of the city in the background, that's why. Yana, Bianca, thank you for joining AHR Interview to speak with us about your article, A Court of Sticks and Branches, Indian Jurisdiction in Colonial Mexico. And beyond, uh, we've got a lot we want to ask you about the article itself. But before that, uh, can you talk a bit about uh, how you came to this topic of what you call Indian Indian jurisdiction and how it evolved as, as an AHR article? Um, well, the question of Indian jurisdiction is not a new one in the historiography. Um, there have been, you know, wonderful works of ethno history, both. Um, in the field of um, Andean studies and also in Mexican history that have thought about the Republic of Indians or the, the Pueblo, the indigenous Pueblo, as um, a, a site of authority, of colonial authority. Um, but generally speaking, these works have treated it as something to be assumed or something in passing, in describing something else, like the interaction of native authority with Spanish authority, for example. Um, and there's been less less focus on the workings and the mechanisms and the symbols and uh, kind of judicial practices um, that underlie Indian jurisdiction. And these are existing indigenous practices that preceded the arrival of the Spanish? Not necessarily. Um, and I think this is something that we're trying to push against, right? This idea that native jurisdiction was a holdover from the pre-Hispanic period, or that it was an imposition from Europe, that, that it's a, a kind of a set of symbols and practices that are, are properly colonial and that emerge from the interaction of, of native and Spanish spheres of authority. Right. 
I, that may be a, a very uh, nuanced point, and this is Bianca talking. It occurs to me that maybe uh, the listeners will wonder <laughs> who's talking, uh, which, <laughs> uh, which, which of us is speaking. But now this is Bianca, and those earlier insightful comments were uh, were Yana as we uh, speak collaboratively. Um, that uh, it may seem uh, a bit hard to uh, grasp the finer point here that you can have a set of uh, judicial practices or jurisdictional practices that at once draw on and evoke a pre-Hispanic past, but actually are not faithful uh, replications over time with of uh, unbroken, uh, you know, uh, rituals that have been reproduced year after year from uh, a period before uh, Spanish rule. And that is a really important point. There, uh, there are uh, alleles or practices that have uh, very, and even um, uh, architectural spaces that function like courts. And that's something that we talk about in the article, um, at palaces that, um, from which uh, the, the uh, people, the Mixtec people that we're talking about, in this region of Teposcolula um, in southern Mexico, um, practice uh, law, but the a perfect overlay to what we might call jurisdiction before the Spanish arrived. It's not a it's not a it's not a perfect uh, parallel. After Spanish rule, jurisdiction is uh, the practice that they're uh, using. But oftentimes, uh, historians are loath to uh, think about what indigenous people like the Mistec are doing as practicing jurisdiction. They're not thinking about these things as legal history. And what our article really attempts to do is to uh, place the practices of um, Mistec uh, cabildos, which are town councils, and uh, alcaldes, um, which are known to be authorities, into the, the field of legal history to show that these are jurisdictional practices. And you refer in the article, I think, to the distinction between law on the ground and law on the books, right? So can you explain what you mean by, by that distinction? Well, the, the article, um, I mean, one of its uh, major points is methodological. Um, and it, it's a way to approach the question of native um, legal practices um, through the Spanish archive. Um, so the, the case that is at the heart of the article um, is a, a pretty voluminous case um, on the larger side. We've, we've both looked at and a lot of legal cases. Are, this is an archival find in Spain or in, in Oaxaca? Oaxaca. Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. Yes, in the, in the um, judicial archive in Oaxaca. Um, and uh, to think about how to approach that voluminous case um, in a way that takes into account each step in its making. Spanish legal cases are the cases that make it to Spanish courts and then get archived in these um, colonial archives um, are often kind of conglomerations of many moments of interacting with tribunals and courts. And they get um, kind of sewn together uh, into um, these multifaceted records. And, um, you know, each turn of the page reveals a kind of another moment, another moment in that process of making the case. And what we wanted to do 
um, in the article is to provide a kind of roadmap for scholars um, to to kind of read that process and to look for native jurisdiction and legal practices um, you know in their kind of fragmentary modes uh, you know through that um, that volume of documentation so the um, on the books on the ground and on the page is kind of a um, I guess, again, a kind of blueprint or roadmap um, for reading and approaching those documents. Um, to imagine that uh, each document, you know, um, had in the moments before its production, you know, certain kinds of social interactions um, or conflicts that, that led to, uh, to its making. Can you be specific about how that might have operated in the case of Juan Matisse, if I pronounce that right, who's, who's Juan the, 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 Juan Matias. Matias, yeah. who's the, who's yeah. the antagonist of this microhistory, which you use to illuminate these methodological issues. Sure. So this is Bianca again. And Juan Matias uh, rode up on his horse as we begin the article um, to uh, 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 a group of villagers who were creating a casa de recibimiento for a Spanish judge who was coming to make a pronouncement about a land dispute. And he ended up in a conflagration with a group of villagers from a rival village. And uh, readers can kind of uh, unpack the story along with us. But what is interesting is that he, uh, in his conflagration, he was punished by the uh, officials of this rival village. And in that punishment, which he ended up objecting to before the Spanish official, before the Spanish judge, he evoked jurisdictional competition. And he used words that were specific to jurisdictional competition, saying that they had exceeded their jurisdictional bounds. And he talked about competition, competir, which was, is incorrect, but he used this term. Um, and we believe he wrote his own petitions. Uh, the, the readers can also follow along with why we believe he was the author of his own petitions. On the books refers to Spanish law that allowed any native uh, cabildo or officials to have a certain amount of jurisdiction over natives both within and beyond their own community. They could do things like punish uh, natives for not attending mass regularly or for drunkenness. Although any serious crimes uh, where blood was shed, for example, would have to go to a Spanish official. They might even, depending on where they were, have some uh, jurisdiction over land disputes. Law on the ground refers to the whole universe of uh, symbols and practices that would be repeated, that constitute jurisdiction, that may or may not be written, but often take place in the world of symbols. And one of the most uh, rich of those symbols is the vara, which is the staff of justice. That has really rich meaning in native societies. It has really rich meaning in Mexican society. In fact, the, the new president of Mexico was given a baston, which is uh, similar to a vara, as uh, by um, a group of, of uh, native people as a symbol of uh, his taking of the presidency. 
And there are beautiful pictures all over the internet. I encourage readers to look uh, for that. And it was kind of a, a very important moment of uh, the conferral of native legitimacy on the president. And there was a lot of discussion of this. But it's important to note that Barras and Bastones also had a life in Spanish uh, law. It had a life in early modern European law. But of course, it was seen as something very important and unique in indigenous society. So this is part of what we were trying to do to uh, emphasize that things like jurisdiction can uh, be given a meaning that are, is pre-Hispanic, even if it is jurisdiction and part of colonial society. That it, it may not be unique to Native society, but its meaning is given a uniqueness by Native society. Finally, on the page is the way Juan Matias wrote up his own, what we believe is wrote up or had written up, his own uh, petitions in challenging the jurisdictional reach of the villager, the, the village cabildo that, um, that uh, punished him, trying to delim delimit the jurisdictional control of these villagers and then uh, uh, having the um, Spanish judge adjudicate the issue. We believe that the real um, symbols of authority, or the real, as um, uh, 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 Tomlins and Komarov put it, the fetishes of law that make law become real, the most important ones at this moment in the, in the imperial society were the pages themselves. The pages and papers of law um, actually make law become real, and both natives and Spaniards participated in producing those fetishes that gave uh, numinous capacity to create the world in its own image uh, that made law create the world in its own So uh, what image. are the clues to this that you find in the archives? To go back to the archives, this is, uh, in the end, a deeply archival piece uh, rooted in a very you know, material analysis of the archive, as Yana described at the beginning. So what are the, sort of the clues that illuminate that for you in the archive itself as it's sewn together, as, as you put it? Well, we begin with Juan Matias's petition um, because we did find the language so interesting. Um, so he he's an interesting figure in that he's representative of a larger stratum of Native society. That uh, you know, this, this case takes place in the late 17th century, but during the 18th century, more and more we see a group of, of Native men predominantly. Um, dominating the genres and the languages of the law and engaging, for example, as legal agents and legal representatives of their communities. Um, they're writing petitions and uh, doing what Native people had done earlier um, in the colonial period, but in greater numbers. Um, so uh, we, we looked at him as a kind of legal entrepreneur. We borrowed from uh, the historian William Taylor's term in that regard um, as someone who um, was using a very specialized set of skills uh, in some ways to, to turn this conflagration to his advantage. And we were intrigued by his use of legal language and in some ways his misuses, right? Um, he's, he's translating for us. I mean, one of the um, the threads of argument in the, the article is that Juan Matias really is a translator. Um, he's a translator of uh, kind of a native um, uh, world of, of legal symbols, of justice, and, and legal practice, um, and those of, of the Spanish. But he's also a translator um, from that period to 
really to the modern historian. He's he's showing us, um, you know, through his his use of language and his use of symbols, um, what native jurisdiction was and how it operated. Um, so we started with his petitions, and we paid attention to the languages that he used. Uh, we paid attention to the, the material objects that he evoked this receiving house, as it was called, the staff of justice, um, the fact uh, that he was, was whipped. Um, so whipping uh, was a practice that we ended up, you know, sort of researching. And we, we took the, uh, those symbols and languages that he used, and then we went beyond the case to look at other cases that we have read, both in southern Mexico and in uh, Peru. Um, to look for other instances in which those symbols and practices were evoked. To argue this is a, this is a very local story, but it's a story that has resonance across the empire. So, so that was indeed my next question. I mean, the article is entitled Indian Jurisdiction in Colonial Mexico, which is Yana's uh, area of specialization, and beyond, including Peru, which is which is uh, Bianca's area of specialization. So how, how did you kind of find this microhistory being replicated elsewhere in, in the colonial Americas? This is Bianca again. Um, I, I will never uh, perhaps uh, feel totally comfortable calling my area of specialization Mexico, but I do want to make a point that I've spent more than a decade now doing research. She's also. Yes, yes. It's okay, but I, I am right. very proudly an Indianist and, um, and a, a, a specialist of Peru and always will be. So that being said, I have spent some, some time in Oaxaca and, uh, and but I will, uh, this and this may end up moving us a little bit to the question of collaboration, right. but it both um, Jan and I met in in some ways on neutral ground, ground that, which is to say, Jan is a specialist in Bialta, which is a, a, a predominantly Zapotec area of um, of what is modern day Oaxaca, and um, I my research included both that region, that district, as well as this region, uh, Tebosqualula. Um, for a book I, I recently wrote, and she also now is working as well on Teposcolula, which is this Mistec region. Um, and so for both of us, that is, uh, new is not the right word, it's been more than a decade for both of us, but this, uh, the, uh, working with Misteco and, and working with these uh, cultures is n not where either one of us began our careers. So in some ways, I think that that's, we both were discovering things together. So you came into this collaborative kind space. Kind of collaborative from space from areas. different, so yes. I do want to kind of point out that, um, and you know, we've followed really fabulous historians who um, are, are, have, who did begin their careers there as well. So that's um, one part of it, but having that breadth, both understanding the region of Oaxaca, the greater area, the variations in on eth different ethnic groups, different native ethnic groups in the wider Oaxaca region, then also understanding what's happening in Mexico as a whole. I, I you know, done research on Mexico City and kind of understanding, you know, that literature, you know, Yana teaches Mexico broadly. And then kind of moving out to the empire and being familiar, familiar as I am with uh, in native communities in places like northern Peru. I've done some work on the Altiplano in Peru, in indigenous communities in urban areas like uh, Lima, at least in their interactions with the law, gives you this kind of, you know, scaled perspective that I think really uh, informed our research and also created some creative 
tensions which we knew going into it. But what it did produce, which I think is useful for us to contribute, aside from the methodological takeaway, which is this on the ground, uh, on the books, on the ground, on the page methodology, which we think is useful way beyond Latin American history, is this observation about the production of Indian jurisdiction, these symbols and practices that created this intermediate plane of jurisdiction look very local if you look at one ethnic community. But what you see are things like haircutting or whipping or barras that get reproduced as native symbols all across the native world of, the, of Spanish America. And that, I think, is a very important thing to, to grasp, that native jurisdiction, Indian jurisdiction, is a plane of, of, of uh, law that's kind of Pan-American. It's being, and it's being produced in these very local ways. And I, I, I hope that people um, are as excited by that as well, it's we It's a powerful are. insight because, as, as you probably know, we've got an accompanying article in the February issue with yours, which is about 20th century Canada and which uses an idea that that author, Miranda Johnson, calls treaty talk, which is very similar, I think, to the Indian jurisdiction or native jurisdiction that you're describing that is taking a, a set of legal practices and ideas that are indigenous to this region of Canada and seeing how they work with and against and within uh, a set of legal prescriptions that come from treaties that were written by, by the Canadian uh, and the British before that authorities, by the colonial authorities. So um, even though it's obviously drawing on a completely different set of cultural reference, uh, as I think I say in my introduction, 4,000 miles to the north, you have a very similar dynamic going on even even uh, three centuries later. So it's a powerful insight. So do talk a bit more about collaboration. As, as you and I were talking, Bianca, we realize that the AHR often publishes co-authored articles, but we haven't thought much about what that process of collaboration looks like, both in the actual uh, crafting of an article in the first instance, and then, of course, in the revision process. So if you two could talk a bit about, about what collaboration has meant, that would be great. Um, this is Jana. Um, so, yeah, the collaboration, well, I think the first thing that we would say, um, I don't want to speak for Bianca, but it has been an incredibly rich and, I think, joyful experience. Um, I've, I've learned so much. Uh, it's it's not a kind of a process of addition, right? When you think about collaboration, sometimes you might think, oh, you divide tasks, and one person takes on one thing, another person takes on the other thing, and you put it together, and there you've got it. It's not like that at all. Um, it's incredibly generative. Um, it is uh, a kind of um, uh, alchemy in some ways, right? Rather than than addition. I'm kind of using these these metaphors, but really, that's the way it felt. Um, we began the process. It's nice to be back in here, here in Chicago because we began this process, I guess, in 2014 mm. um, at a wonderful symposium uh, at the Newberry Library organized by Brian Owensby and Richard Ross about um, indigenous justice in the new world. And it was kind of a comparative look at North America and um, what would become Latin America. Um, so uh, we you know, kind of began our conversation there mm -hmm. and uh, decided that we wanted to write something together about this that brought our insights um, 
with regard to ethnohistory as a field into conversation with legal history, um, both of which you know interest us intensely. Um, and uh, you know, we kind of began the process there. It was a lot of phone conversations. We finally decided to meet in the middle. We met in Florida, actually, halfway. I live in Atlanta. Bianca lives uh, in Miami. We met in Tampa. Yeah. And we kind of hold up together. We and got a hotel room. We, yes. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> at the beach. Treasure Island. At Treasure Island, which we did not, uh, we did, we went into the water once. It <laughs> yes. was a pretty sad. And did you start writing at that point? We did. Yeah. We brought we brought the case with us. We brought a lot of cases. Yes, and then uh, we brought a lot of. We did a lot of advance work where we brought ideas. There were some kind of outlines. Mm -hmm. So to be clear, at the Newberry Conference, we each presented our individual work. It, it wasn't that we came together at the Newberry Conference collaboratively. But based on the same archive, or no? No, no. no. Well, uh, we we published we had, our pieces we, elsewhere. Yeah, we were. Mm -hmm. uh, one was a chapter from my book, and and Yana was working on something that she had published elsewhere. And so, but we began a conversation. So we were very intentional in collaborating, and uh, in, and in, in uh, bringing together uh, documents that we had collected and not worked on, and. Uh, we knew that what we wanted to do was to work on uh, on native law. In other words, on this ethno this this uh, kind of space between ethno history and the law. It, you know, we our 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 ideas, our imagination had been piqued by this conference, and we knew we wanted to Did work. Did you know on it. you wanted to focus on this single case? No, as no, that we figured Yana out. Brought that right. case, That's, and yeah. we I brought a bunch of stuff from northern Peru. She brought a bunch of stuff from Vialta. I brought things from Vialta as well. She brought things from Vialta, but we started to work on this one case, and we had no idea that it was going to flower. Yes, we were. Um, it, we liked this case because in that initial petition that we looked at, there was a lot of talk about jurisdiction in the petition. And, you know, we want to mention, of course, Lori Benton, who... who we just ran into, right? We just ran into here. her and told her that we were coming here to do this interview because, you know, her work is, is very important in the way that we conceptualize the article. Um, and she happened to be at the conference, too. Um, so... Uh, so yes, this this is why we decided on that that case, and that we were going to kind of work our way through and it. Did you imagine it was for the AHR from the get go? Or no, I don't think we had. I mean, we just kind of we just worked our way through it. It was funny because I don't know when we knew over the course of the days that we were holed up. We went so deep into this case um, that we became obsessed with it. <laughs> and we, I, we're similar in that respect, but we worked around the clock. I mean, we really broke to eat and went back in and did a lot of, uh, we, we had books with us and we kept saying, we have to look up this, we have to look up that, but we just kept going the way that one does with this kind of um, paleographic work where you're trying to make sense of things and things don't make sense and it's a bit foreign, and, but at some point, maybe two two days in, I think that we recognized this is going to be the whole article is is going to be this case, and now we need to go off into pieces. Mm -hmm. But I, we didn't work with anything in mind other than that this would be a, a contained piece off of this. Now, of course, an HR article is always a collaborative article, even if it's often silent collaboration, which is collaboration among the author 
the peer reviewers and then the editor. Um, so when it came then to the process of revising, was that made easier or more difficult by collaboration? I don't know if it's a question of easier or difficult. Um, it was really generative. I mean, again, I think, I think what surprised Bianca and me is that we generated our own archive in the process of writing and revising this article. I'm not exaggerating when I think we probably went through 100 drafts. More. More. I mean, back and forth, back well, and just forth. I encourage people to realize how easy it was to submit <laughs> to the HR. Yeah, no, it was, um, but it was, gen- it was, uh, we, we wrote and rewrote this article many times. Yeah. So I wonder if the authors might want to think before they go in, we didn't do this kind of vetting of one another, um, but because there are probably two phases to think about collaboration. One is to, this has been a fabulous experience, and some of this may be luck, but Jan and I tend to work in similar ways, both in terms of the way that we um, approach the research or the obsessiveness about the documentation, um, as well as the way that we approach writing. I mean, we may be different kinds of writers, or she's incredibly clear and systematic in a way that I'm more verbose, right? I mean, we could draw more distinctions, but I think we're more alike than different. And I, I and now kind of thinking about it, if you're going to go into that, it might be smart to vet with your, your collaborator if you're if you share those traits in common. Just we didn't what do work that. Style is yeah, like, yes. we didn't do that and we got lucky. But on both of those counts, I think it would probably be a smart thing to figure out whether or not you're very different. Um, the one thing that we did was we would not work at the same time, obviously, on the writing. We would say, I'm going in. Right. Is the, the <laughs> signal that we would say to one another, and I, I plan to go in for this many days and I'll turn it over to you. And we were also both very good at keeping true to our word. So if I told her I'll be done by Wednesday, usually I was done by Wednesday, and then I would turn it to her. And then you would rewrite each other. One back and yes. forth, back Track and changes, forth, back and layers forth. and layers and layers of them. Yeah. Yana was also very patient when I needed to speak to her orally, meaning on the telephone or by Skype about things. Sometimes I need to talk instead of just, we did plenty of track changes. So many and some, we generally were good, but there were a couple of track changes, snafus, <laughs> with those 200 many yeah. versions that we did. But yeah, I do think that um, sometimes you, you want to make sure that, you, that your styles also are tolerant of the other one's style. Sometimes I would even want to speak to her to hear her voice about the change of a word. Because sometimes a word can mean a lot. It can have political connotations. And I wanted to hear whether or not uh, these, uh, you know, change of a word was okay with her. I wanted to hear in her voice. She was very patient when that would be the case with me. Well, the final result is a beautiful collaboration because I think most readers will see you can't distinguish Bianca Prima's voice from Yana Yanakakis's yeah. voice, but it really speaks in in one voice uh, and uh, seamless in that regard, which really is a, a, the best example of 
of the collaborative process. So um, I want to thank you both. I encourage our readers to look at the February issue of the American Historical Review, which features this article, the other article uh, by Miranda Johnson on treaty talk in Northwest territories of Canada in the 20th century, and an introductory essay to both of these by Josh Reed from the University of Washington. So it's a forum, and it's grown into a forum on indigenous agency and the law um, from the 17th century Americas uh, to 20th century Canada. So thank you both very much for joining us. Thank and, you for uh, having us. Thank you. That was Alex Lichtenstein speaking with Bianca Primo and Yana Yanakakis about their article, A Court of Sticks and Branches, Indian Jurisdiction in Colonial Mexico and Beyond. It appears in the February 2019 issue of the AHR as part of the forum Indigenous Agency and Colonial Law. You can listen to more episodes of this podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Find us with the search term American Historical Association. I'm Daniel Story, and this is AHR Interview. Thanks for listening.